Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. Some of the most controversial debates over speech and content moderation on social media platforms are now due for consideration in the Supreme Court. Last month, Florida's Attorney General asked the court to decide whether states have the right to regulate how social media companies moderate content on their services after Florida and Texas passed laws that challenge practices of tech firms that lawmakers there regard as anti-democratic. And this month, the Supreme Court decided to hear two cases that will have a bearing on interpretation of Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which generally provides platforms with immunity from legal liability for user-generated content. To talk about these various developments, I spoke to three people covering these issues closely. We also made time to discuss Elon Musk's on-again, off-again pursuit of Twitter, which appears to be on-again, and how his potential acquisition of the company relates to the broader debate around speech and moderation issues. Let's get into the discussion with this week's guests. I'm Brandon Onake. I'm the director of the Citrus Policy Lab at UC Berkeley, where we support interdisciplinary tech policy research and engagement. I'm also the director of a new initiative we just launched a couple of weeks ago called Our Better Web. It's an interdisciplinary initiative to strengthen the power of the internet to support resilient democratic societies and address the sharp rise of online harms. I'm Jamil Jaffer. I'm the director of the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University. I'm Will Arimas. I am a news analysis writer covering technology and society for the Washington Post. Will, I think I'll ask you to start things off. Um, I uh, initiated the correspondence around doing this podcast after reading an article that you wrote about uh, a request from Florida's attorney general late last month uh, who asked the Supreme Court to decide whether states have the right to regulate how social media companies moderate content on their services. I was at the Trust and Safety Research Conference out in Palo Alto last week, and there were hundreds and hundreds of people there, both academics and many, many people from industry concerned about content moderation issues. And at one point, I looked up thinking about this and thought, Is the Supreme Court about to make all these people's jobs somehow against the law or perhaps, you know, otherwise kind of uh, do them in in terms of their approach to things at the moment? But can you just sort of tell us what what happened first in, in Florida and then we'll get into the other cases? Yeah. So both Texas and Florida passed laws that would restrict Internet companies ability to moderate content. And they did it in slightly different ways that Jamil can probably speak to the specifics better than I can. But the the Texas law says that they can't censor and they they use this word censor, which is a, a contested term, but that they can't censor posts from any user, at least any Texan, based on the political viewpoint they express. Florida's law took a little bit of a different approach It said that they can't they can't censor politicians, uh, candidates for elected office, or uh, journalistic organizations over a certain size. Um, So that's a little less restrictive in a way, but both of them are trying to get at the same thing, which is this long-running contention from many on the right that the big online platforms, in their efforts to rein in 
misinformation, hate speech, conspiracies, etc., have gone too far and are squelching conservative viewpoints all across the internet. Texas's law was upheld in, in somewhat of a, a, a stunning decision by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. Florida's law was mostly or, or largely struck down by a different Court of Appeals. So uh, Florida, seeing that Texas's was upheld, said, hey, we, you know, let's set, you know, Supreme Court, let's get a ruling here because now we've got a, a split between the two circuits and we want ours upheld too. So uh, the questions presented by Florida's Attorney General are, and, and I'm quoting here, one, whether the First Amendment prohibits a state from requiring that social media companies host third-party communications and from regulating the time, place, and manner in which they do so, and two, whether the First Amendment prohibits a state from requiring social media companies to notify and provide an explanation to their users when they censor the user's speech. Um, I want to come to you, Brandy and Jamil, where do we net out on these questions uh, from your point of view? Uh, or what do you think is important about these questions? Jamil, I know you've written that the companies are right that this is uh, these laws are a violation of their First Amendment uh, rights, uh, but maybe for the wrong reasons. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that there are, I, I think that Will's division uh, in, into sort of the must carry rules on, on one hand, and then there are these sort of procedural and transparency rules on the other hand. I feel differently about those two categories. So with respect to the must carry rules, I, I think that, and by must carry, I mean the viewpoint discrimination rule that, that Will described, as well as the, the rule that says, the, the Florida rule that says that platforms can't take down political candidate speech in advance of the election. I, I think that those kinds of rules obviously implicate the platform's editorial judgment. Platforms, in my view, do exercise editorial judgment when they decide what kind of content to put up, can stay up on their platform and which kind of plat- uh, content has to come down. Um, they are exercising editorial judgment in a very different way than you know newspapers do when they decide what to publish or parade organizers do when they decide what kinds of floats can be in the parade. But it is nonetheless a form of editorial judgment. They are making a kind of value judgment about what content uh, is useful to their users and what content isn't. And I, I see that as, you know, obviously First Amendment activity. My guess is that most of the justices will see that as First Amendment activity. That doesn't actually answer the question that's presented in the case about, you know, are these must-carry rules constitutional or not? Because you can accept that the platforms are exercising editorial judgment and then still be left with the question of, well, so what? That doesn't necessarily mean that that Congress can't regulate the exercise of editorial judgment. So, you know, the way I would evaluate is the way I would evaluate any other uh, rule that tried to direct editorial judgment in this way. And that's by asking, is this a content neutral rule or a a content based rule? If it's content neutral, it's subject to less scrutiny. If it's content based, then it's subject to more scrutiny. I think in these cases, uh, it's going to be very hard for the states to justify these must carry rules because the findings, um, the legislative findings are very weak. There is a lot of language in the legislative history. This is especially true in Florida, but also true in Texas, uh, that suggests that the rules were imposed for uh, in, in order to retaliate, retaliate against the platforms for having taken down President Trump's account, for example. Um, so I think there are a lot of reasons why these must carry rules should should fall. But, you know, if if I were on the court, uh, which obviously, you know, I'll, I'll never be, but if I were on the court, then I would, you know, not not favor 
a categorical prohibition on must-carry um, obligations in this context, I would just say that these particular must-carry obligations have to be subjected to uh, very stringent scrutiny, and they don't survive that that scrutiny. I've talked for a long time, so I won't talk right now about the transparency laws, but I feel differently with the transparency pieces of the, the laws. I think that those might might well be constitutional, or at least some of them might be constitutional. Randy, I want to bring you in, give you an opportunity to uh, either respond to, to Jamil or take us in the new territory. Yeah, Jamil, thank you so much for bringing up this point about platforms editorial judgment. And if we could take it back to Section 230, I think that this is an important point that needs to be reiterated that Section 230 first, it shields websites from civil lawsuits arising out of illegal content posted by the website's users. But second, it also allows websites to retain this immunity, even if they engage in content moderation that removes or restricts access to or availability of material. And the case before the Supreme Court, the Gonzalez versus Google case, really gets at this content moderation piece, right, around whether or not when they are using a recommender system or an algorithm to prioritize content to end users, and if that content is illegal, like we can get into more of a discussion about that case and what the content is, do they maintain that immunity? I also want to point out that the Citrus Policy Lab, in partnership with the Our Better Web Initiative, we maintain a a database of all legislation proposed at the federal level that seeks to amend, revoke, reform Section 230. So I encourage people to check that out. And in that database, we include an analysis in there so you can uh, see what might be the effects of some of this legislation. Now, transparency, let's talk a little bit about that. I'm so happy that you brought that up. I am an academic. I am very, very much in favor of transparency of platforms in particular, not just transparency around their, their, there's two sorts of transparency, right? They want transparency over um, how they're making decisions and their moderation of content, removal of content and how that aligns with their terms of service. But then also there's another side of transparency around how may we compel platforms to open up more data to independent researchers and journalists to provide insight into what's actually happening on these platforms and how we should shape legislation and regulation that addresses those challenges that we see are increasingly happening on online platforms. So I'm actually, I'd like to bounce a question to you, Jamil. Let's talk a little bit about transparency obligations and whether or not platforms should be required to open up their data to third parties. Well, in, in general, I, I'm in favor of that kind of transparency. In fact, you know, my my colleagues at the Knight Institute drafted a piece of the Platform Accountability and Transparency Act, which uh, would provide journalists and researchers with a safe harbor to use particular kinds of digital tools to study the platforms. And uh, at least at a conceptual level, I very much support the other piece of the PADA bill, which is the part that you just described, Brandy, that that you know would require the, the platforms to disclose information, certain kinds of information to uh, academic researchers. Um, I do think that, you know, in general, transparency requirements do present, they present First Amendment questions because first you know transparency requiring transparency about editorial decision making can uh, have an indirect effect on editorial decision making right the the in fact sometimes the whole point of imposing transparency obligations is to affect the editorial decisions that the particular actor is making 
but also transparency obligations can be used to, you know, in a kind of discriminatory way, uh, you know, in order to punish editors for their editorial decisions. And so I do think we have to be careful about, you know, the kinds of transparency provisions we're proposing and uh, the ways that those kinds of transparency provisions might be used. But I am not at all sympathetic to the view that those concerns are so great and so ever-present that we should be categorically opposed to any imposition of transparency obligations on editorial actors. I think that would be a kind of you know disaster for First Amendment values uh, because a certain amount of transparency about how the public sphere operates is crucial to, you know, have, having a public sphere that has kind of integrity and, you know, that people can sort of rely on. Um, so I think that, that uh, you know, they're kind of First Amendment considerations on both sides of the, the equation here. I think that, you know, the editorial actors do have a point when they say transparency obligations can be abused. But to me, uh, there's also a First Amendment uh, argument on the other side, which is that the public needs access to this kind of information to understand the forces that are shaping public discourse. And um, I think that there has to be, you know, a way through that 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 allows certain kinds of transparency obligations to, to to be imposed. And I think that that some of the obligations in the Florida and Texas laws might be of that, you know, of that kind. I think that the cases are complicated because of the motivations behind these laws. Uh, and also, you know, the transparency provisions aren't always drafted as carefully uh, as you would want them to be. And some of them seem to impose, you know, very, very burdensome requirements for, you know, non-obvious you know, sort of rewards on the other side. So so these these particular laws are a little bit complicated, but sort of at a high at a higher level, I agree with you, Brandy. And I think that the federal law, the PADA bill is pretty good. Yes, thank you. And actually, I did an analysis of the Platform Accountability and Transparency Act Um here in the U.S., but then in the EU, we have the Digital Services Act. I published that piece in Science earlier this year. So yes, I agree with you that PADA is great. And also, I just want to make the point that while we're talking about some states and federal level, really a lot of this is happening at the state level. And I just want to bring up one other case that I think is relevant here around this compelled transparency and some of the ways that companies are effectively able to push back So in Maryland, uh, there's this Online Electioneering Transparency and Accountability Act that was passed into law in 2018, and it would have required newspapers and other media platforms to publish information on their websites about the political ads they display. They were able to successfully argue that this may inadvertently chill speech because now you're going to have this public database of political ads, and so people may not be willing to publish uh, or pay for political ads. And so, yes, these concerns, I think, are real around platform transparency. And it's how to effectively strike that balance between how do we open up data to independent researchers to better inform the public on what's happening on the platforms and shape better regulation and legislation. Will, I want to come to you. Brandy kind of took us towards Section 230 in her comments earlier. And I know you've been looking at uh, the kind of broader historical and political context around the ongoing debate around Section 230. So I thought I might sort of ask you to maybe hit some of the high points there and how that relates perhaps to the context in which the Supreme Court will apparently make its decision with regard to uh, these two cases it's agreed to hear uh, this week, uh, which, you know, Brandy mentioned uh, Gonzalez et al. versus Google. uh, And then we've got of course, uh, Tomna versus Twitter et al. So I don't know, Will, if that gives you enough of a bit of context to launch in. 
you know, your listeners are probably familiar with the broad contours of Section 230. I mean, it was a, it was part of the Communications Decency Act back in 1996 at a time when the big political concern about this new thing called the Internet was that kids would use it to look at pornography. That was that was like the you know, that was the bipartisan concern that motivated the Communications Decency Act. And then a Republican and a Democrat, Chris Cox and Ron Wyden, slipped in this bit uh, that tried to move the power for moderating the internet, to give it to the companies I and mean, then give it to the, to the forums, give them the power to decide whether to leave stuff up or take stuff down. You know, they wanted to facilitate the growth of this of this fledgling industry. Um, you know, it was bringing new jobs to Oregon and California. Um, they also saw it as a way uh, to allow forums to use their own judgment uh, and to sort of compete in the marketplace on uh, having a family friendly forum or having a freewheeling forum. And it was pretty uncontroversial at the time. I mean, it didn't get a lot of attention when it passed. Over the years, uh, it, it you know this this sort of bipartisan consensus that we should leave it to the companies to decide what speech is okay and what isn't. Um, it stood for you know it stood for quite some time, but recently it's begun to crumble as both left and right have become dissatisfied uh, with the power that that the big platforms have over what people can say and can't say. I mean, the First Amendment protects us from censorship by the government. There is a growing sense, I think, from people on right and left that the social media companies today are so big and so powerful and the decisions, you know, which you get booted off Facebook, that has an effect on your ability to speak that is not negligible. It's not trivial. And so one of the ways that they've, that, that both left and right have seen to, to try to reestablish some, some government authority there is to amend section 230. You could imagine other approaches. I mean, you could, you know, there's there are also antitrust bills. I mean, there there are privacy bills that would take aim at these companies' business practices um, and and their power directly, rather than removing the liability shield. But Section 230 does seem to be a, a convenient way for for politicians to try to advance their view of what these giant platforms should be doing differently in terms of speech. And of course, it's different for both sides. I mean, the left, you know, largely would like to see companies be more aggressive in, in their moderation, more careful when it comes to, to amplifying misinformation or conspiracy theories. Um, the right would like to see them be more permissive. It's interesting that they both see weakening Section 230 as, as a way to do that. You know, I guess if Section 230 does get further weakened, we, of course, we had SESTA-FOSTA in 2018, which carved out content that facilitates sex trafficking. If it does get further weakened, I guess we'll find out who's right. You know, I guess we'll find out whether it, it leads uh, companies to be much more careful in what they in what they allow um, because they're fear, afraid of being sued or whether it leads them to go in, in the opposite direction and, and just let it be a, a free for all. But, you know, I think that I think the the terrorism case, the Section 230 terrorism case is interesting because once again, there's there's a type of speech that both left and right can kind of agree is bad, right? I mean, the, the, there was a bipartisan uh, agreement on decency and, and pornography and that sort of thing that that platforms should be able to, you know, keep their, their sites clean. Uh, terrorism is another one of those categories where it's not really a partisan thing. You know, both left, both the Democrats and the Republicans can see value in platforms taking down terrorist content. Um, so I think this is an interesting test case for Section 230 um, as the Supreme Court considers that appeal. Thinking about 
the content and the removal of content. As I mentioned before, Section 230 does protect platforms from removing content they find objectionable. But right now, it's unclear whether or not this protects websites that actually promote illegal content. So you had mentioned in this Gonzalez case, they're talking about terrorist content, which is tied to the Anti-Terrorism Act, where you cannot help amplify or promote or support terrorist content. And I think that this is such an interesting question, because even though the Supreme Court case is focused on terrorist content, the holding of that case is going to have a spillover effect on other you know, harmful content in the mitigation of the spread of that harmful content. One thing that I think is really important for us to discuss is really about recommender systems and what does that mean to amplify or to target content? And then how can we narrowly scope any of these interventions to mitigate the spreading of harmful content? I'm still kind of getting my head around how these cases relate to each other, how Gonzalez and and the NetChoice cases uh, relate to each other. You know, on Gonzalez, uh, you know, Brandy's obviously right that the, the Gonzalez case is in part about whether Section 230 protects recommendations, whether that's sort of within the scope of the immunity provided by by 230. You know, if the court were to hold that it doesn't, that Section 230 doesn't extend to, to recommendations, then I think there's an important First Amendment question that will be presented because... The, the next argument that the platforms will make is, well, even if Section 230 doesn't protect us, you know, how is it possible that the First Amendment permits the government to impose criminal liability on the basis of telling somebody to read something? Like, surely, if anything is pre- protected by the First Amendment, you know, suggesting to somebody that they read something is protected by the First Amendment. Now, I don't, I don't think it's that simple. Um, uh, there's this, you know, case from I think it's 1959, Smith versus California, which involved a bookseller who was prosecuted because one book in his bookstore was obscene. And the court said, well, as long as you're not on notice, if you're not on notice that the book is obscene, then the government can't hold you um, criminally liable. But, you know, that was a case uh, in in which the bookseller wasn't on notice. I mean, there's a difference between being on notice. And uh, Gonzalez's case, I think, involves a situation where the platform was at least allegedly on notice of the, uh, the character of that speech. And then there's this question of whether the sort of analog era rules from 1959 make sense for the digital era that we're living in now. So, you know, I don't know, I don't know how the Smith case would be applied in this context, but but it seems to me that these questions that kind of got shunted to the margins because of Section 230, the First Amendment questions that you know the courts never had to answer because of Section 230 would suddenly come back with a you know with a vengeance if uh, Section 230 were construed narrowly. The other thing I just wanted to say. Is that I mean, it is absolutely true, obviously, that, you know, at some level, everybody is on the same page that terrorist speech is terrible and the platform should do something about it. But it actually gets pretty complicated when you um, you know get beneath the surface, because, uh, you know, what counts as terrorist speech is a hugely controversial question. The U.S. legal system makes everything turn in the first instance on whether a particular group has been designated and the designation process is, you know, entirely political with, you know, groups that the United States favors not being designated and groups that the United States disfavors being designated. And, uh, you know, the intersection of those kind of foreign policy, national security decisions and free speech, you know, that intersection has already generated a lot of controversy in the courts outside the context of platforms, uh, including a Supreme Court case, a humanitarian law project um, from 15 years ago. 
And now we have the kind of intersection between that very controversial and unsatisfying set of cases and this other controversial and unsatisfying set of cases involving platforms. I am not yet yet ready to predict how that plays out, but I think that you know the 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 fact that it involves terrorist speech is is in a way you know in a way makes it simpler, in a way makes it more complicated. Randy, I totally agree with you, Jamila, and I love to think about case precedent for this, and also how the Wolf of Wall Street plays into this story about Section 230 in the Stratton Oakmont case. So in my mind, I love to imagine this Jordan Belfort as Leonardo DiCaprio and thinking about the connections to where we are right now with platform content moderation. And in that case, which was in 1995, right there before the Communications Decency Act was passed, which led to Section 230 actually being passed because there was this fear, right, that the platforms would be held liable for all content posted. So they should have some protection so that content can flourish, the Internet can grow. But we're in a different place now. We're in a different place now than we were two years ago. The platforms are constantly changing, constantly evolving. And that lack of transparency around recommender systems and how these platforms work further complicate our ability to understand what's happening and how to appropriately govern it and oversee it. And I think a really important point here is around the recommender systems. So what does it mean to amplify content? What is it, you know, and especially around the content moderation and the ties to the Texas law where the platforms would essentially be required to include all speech and not moderate or remove content. This to me is going to create platforms that are a nightmare to use full of just junk, you know, how do you sort through all of that content that would just be coming at you as a flood? These proposals to actually change recommender systems or give end users greater control over the recommender systems, while I think that they sound great at first blush in practice, we cannot have platforms that are not using some type of algorithmic content moderation and recommendation system. So actually, I think some of the legislation like the Nudge Act proposed by Klobuchar are really interesting proposals to look at, well, how might we research other methods that can be used to mitigate the spread of harmful content? Will, you wanted to jump in. Yeah, that's a great point, Brandy. I mean, I, I think that, you know, it can seem really convenient to say something like, well, platforms, you know, it's okay for them to moderate content, but they shouldn't be able to discriminate based on viewpoint, right? That's what Texas Texas wants to say. It sounds really easy to say, well, you know, it's okay for platforms to host content that is maybe illegal, but they shouldn't be able, they shouldn't be allowed to amplify it. But you get into some of the, some of the edge cases and those kinds of claims start to fall, those, those sorts of ideas start to fall apart as Brandy was, was mentioning. I mean, one of the examples is, how do you have Wikipedia if it can't if if Wikipedia can't discriminate based on viewpoint, right? I mean, if it has to treat all viewpoints equally, how do you ever get a factual and and reliable encyclopedia entry? You know, the whole process of, of, of Wikipedia, the whole what it's all about is its editors, its volunteer editors, are deciding which which viewpoints are worthy of inclusion in an article and which aren't. In terms of recommender systems and algorithms, I mean. If companies are going to be held liable when they amplify harmful content via an algorithm, what does that mean for Google search results, right? Like Google's, Google's algorithm decides which uh, links are more credible than others 
that's the whole foundation of modern internet search. Uh, you know, do they have to go back to some kind of s system where they're just like counting the number of keywords in an article and it would be a disaster. So, uh, you know, I, I think there's, there are valid concerns animating these types of reform efforts. And then there are, I think there are also valid concerns that the, that the remedies would be even worse than the disease potentially. Will, I want to stick with you just for a minute, because I also want to bring in the other, I guess, topic du jour this week, which is uh, Elon Musk's on again, off again, potential acquisition of Twitter, which is playing out in, in the context of these questions. Um, and to some extent, I think Elon Musk thinks he can settle these questions, uh, at least uh, by some better engineering or some better X version of Twitter uh, that he imagines may be possible. Um, what's going on? Is it is it it's eleven thirty five a.m. on Friday, October seventh? Is the acquisition going to happen? Not going to happen? What do we know? Yeah, it's, I mean, this has been a roller coaster. Elon Musk's uh, attempt to acquire Twitter and then his attempt to get out of acquiring Twitter. The latest, as we as we record this is that he has said he will go through with his original offer to buy Twitter for 42, whatever it is, 42, $44 billion, which seems essentially like admitting defeat. Um, he wants Twitter to drop the case as a result. And Twitter's at this point, Twitter's like, no, man, we don't trust you. Like, we want the court to stay involved in this. Like, who knows if you're going to change your mind again? And so the, the latest is that Musk, the court has given Musk uh, until... I believe it's October 28th to actually close the deal, like actually put up the money, get, you know, buy the company and take it over. Otherwise, the trial's back on for November and, and Twitter can go after him again. I mean, the, the, I, I assume the reason that we're bringing this up in this context is because one of the things that Musk has said he would do with Twitter is, is restore it to this ideal, idealized, you know, sort of free speech social network, you know, make it less sensorial. Um, you know, he was mad when they banned the Babylon Bee, which is this right-leaning parody publication that Elon Musk enjoys. He thinks it was a mistake for them to ban Donald Trump in the wake of the January 6th attacks. You know, he has a lot of friends on the right who who subscribe to this view that, that Twitter has gone too far in suppressing uh, conservative viewpoints. So he wants to kind of open it back up. And he, you know, he really takes an engineer's view of this, I think, you know, he thinks that these questions aren't complicated, that you just, you just allow free speech. And sure, yeah, if something's really bad, then we'll take it down. But otherwise, we should allow it, you know, that's, you know, he said things to that effect. As anybody who's worked in the space over the decades could, you know, could tell him that quickly turns out to be a lot more complicated than it sounds. But, you know, broadly speaking, I think he wants to, he wants a more laissez-faire approach to content moderation on social media, and he's going to try to institute that at Twitter. And, you know, we'll, we'll see how that goes. Jamil, you and I have uh, differed perhaps on, I guess, efficacy of allowing Donald Trump back on uh, Twitter's platform. But uh, to Will's point about seeing the acquisition in the context of this broader debate that's that's occurring, you know, in legislatures and at the Supreme Court, I don't know. How do you look at it right now? Um, well, I, I guess I, I, you know, see see this particular takeover fight in the same way that Will does. I, I don't, I don't think that Musk is going to solve. The problems of you know free speech online or even you know on on Twitter because they're they're not ultimately solvable problems like they, they require all sorts of trade offs and reasonable people could disagree about you know how to make those those trade offs I mean that's not to say that there aren't you know better answers and worse answers I actually think that Twitter has been 
relatively thoughtful about this stuff. I don't agree with every decision they've made, but I, you know, I think they've been pretty thoughtful about trying to build a, a platform that serves a larger public interest in the exchange of ideas and exchange of information. And, you know, on this, you know, I, I think that there's some things that, that, you know, Musk could do, um, you know, if he were really committed to making, uh, you know, Twitter more or laissez-faire or, 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 or just sort of a, a broadening discourse on, on Twitter, you know, he, he could put a finger on the scale of labeling over taking things down. You know, he could require more strikes before somebody's kicked off the platform. As you say, he could, you know, put Trump back on. Uh, you know, I, I actually think there's a good argument for putting uh, Trump back on um, just because I think that there are you know, there are really two big two big principles here. One is that you know, we want our public sphere to serve self-government and serve democracy. And uh, that requires a certain amount of moderation, requires a certain amount of, you know, taking unhelpful stuff down. Uh, the other principle, though, is that, you know, we don't want uh, to be at the mercy of we don't want self-government to be at the mercy of these really large platforms who, you know, who have a lot of control over what gets said online and who can say it and what ideas get traction. And so you have this, you know, these two, two competing principles and you have to find some, you know, some, some uh, way to reconcile them. And, you know, I, I, I think that when it comes to the speech of public officials, the platforms should be, uh, or political candidates, the platforms should be really hesitant to interfere or to take uh, those accounts down. And when they do, they should do it, you know, against the background of transparent principles and, you know, a real uh, a transparent process. And that's not really what, you know, what, what happened in Trump's case. And I don't think that, you know, the issue here is that Trump was treated unfairly, that you know, I, I do not lose any sleep over whether Trump is treated fairly or not. But um, I do think that ordinary citizens, uh, you know, have a kind of, you know, a right to hear the speech of political candidates and government officials. And when these gatekeeper platforms interfere with that right, they should do it very, very carefully. And I'm not persuaded that, you know, um, that the platforms were as careful as they should have been this this past time around. So, you, you know, may, maybe, maybe, sorry, I keep giving you really long answers, but Musk is, uh, you know, if, if Musk wants to just kind of uh, tinker with the dials a little bit, you know, in those ways, then you know, I, 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 I think that's that's fine, but I don't think he's going to, you know, solve the problems of free speech online uh, as he, you know, seems to think he's going to do. Brandy, do you think about this and Musk to some extent in the context also? Of, we've talked mostly in the context of U.S. law and regulation in this conversation, but the Digital Services Act is going to become a reality. Uh, Elon Musk's hands might be tied to some extent, uh, as it were, if he decides to try to put his fingers on the scale, as Jamil says, uh, over certain platform features or functions, um, he'll have uh, to deal with a new sheriff on some level. First, before I get into that, the international implications of the EU on the U.S., I want to comment on uh, Jamil and Will. Um, first, I think I don't know if we've ever seen a greater example of the Dunning-Kruger effect than we do with Elon Musk trying to buy a platform and thinking about content moderation in an area where he has no expertise and obviously from his statements does not fully understand the complexity of online platforms. Jamil, you said that you know, we should be thinking of these as the public sphere. They should be inclusive of voice. I mean, to me, it's yes, I agree with you that it is this 
kind of quasi-public sphere. And to me, it's really sad that our public sphere is, is owned by the private sector. And these companies can make decisions about the content that they want to carry or not. And then also, I want to bring up a, a law in California that I think has a lot of relevance here. Because as we talk about this amplification and targeting of content, about two weeks ago in California, we passed the Age Appropriate Design Code Act. And it will take effect in July 2024. And it addresses any websites likely to be accessed by children. So those under 18, there's still a lack of clarity on, you know, does this encompass all websites that they could access or websites that are making content that we know is specifically targeted to youth. But I'm bringing it up because in that law, it says covered businesses are prohibited from using a child's personal information in a way that the business knows or has reason to know is material detrimental to the physical health, mental health or well-being of a child. And as we know from Francis Hogan and the Facebook papers about the harmful effects of Instagram on child mental health, I think these are some of the issues or are actually the intervention points that we can hold platforms more accountable for the spread of content. We've also been talking a lot about amplification, but not a lot about targeting, right? Algorithms do both things. They present content through the recommender system to individuals, they amplify through virality, but also it's distributed in a way that can go directly to the person who is most interested in that topic. If we're talking about disinformation, hate speech, harassment, we can, we, the algorithms can target that content to those individuals who are most susceptible to its manipulative appeal. And to me, those issues around algorithmic amplification and targeting are going to be really interesting to think about how do we build in these technical mechanisms to mitigate harms. You want me to talk about the EU and the yeah, DFA? If you want I to actually add to that one, on I that, really yeah. want to talk about because, right, when Elon Musk was talking about buying Twitter, one of the things he said was, I want to, you know, sort of democratize the recommender system. I want people to be able to choose how their content is fed to them in their feed. They should have some control over that. Now, in the EU, we have the Digital Services Act, which does grant individuals that right to be able to have control over their recommender system and understand how it works. In the U.S., we've had legislation proposed that would give people the power to say, I do not want my personally identifiable information to be used in the recommender system. Again, while this sounds great in theory, I think in practice, it's a whole nother can of worms because are people really going to tweak their algorithm of their recommender system to feed them content of diverse, healthy viewpoints? Or are people going to build out recommender systems and tailor the recommender systems in a way that reconfirm their pre-held beliefs, their biased uh, and prejudiced viewpoints, you know, I think that we need a lot more research and to tie back to the beginning of this conversation around transparency, I think that actually opening up platform data, fostering collaborations between industry and academia, journalists, civil society on these issues is critical because any of these proposals, we have to think about what are some of those unintended, unintended spillover effects. So when you think about these court decisions that could come, um, you know, anytime in the in the next several months, when you think about this various legislation, when you think about the Digital Services Act coming into effect, the internet could look very different in 2023, 2024. Um, I just want quickly to go around to the three of you. What's your threat level? Is are things much better, much worse a year from today? Do you suspect that the outcome of some of these cases that we've talked about today could potentially 
radically transform the internet in the way that some observers suggest. Will, perhaps I'll start with you. It's hard to predict. Um, I think that that some of the proposals, some of the laws that have been passed, um, some of the arguments that are being made against Section 230, as I've said, would have some fairly dramatic consequences if implemented. I think that that doesn't mean they won't happen. You know, we saw the Supreme Court overturn Roe v. Wade earlier this year. That's going to have dramatic consequences. It happened. I think to some extent, there will be a response. You know, there'll, there'll be uh, adjustments made. There'll be, you know, reconsiderations. There will be backlashes. There will be, the, you know, the internet is adaptable and, uh, you know, the internet finds a way. And I think that the internet's going to look a lot like the internet in the years to come one way or another. You know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a place where people find ways to, to spread ideas that are offensive. It's going to be a place where people find ways to spread ideas that are, are valuable and that wouldn't, that might not spread otherwise. It's going to be, you know, there are going to be platforms that try to keep things clean and, and feeling safe um, and, you know, succeed and fail to different degrees. There are going to be ones that, that allow absolutely anything and users will vote with their feet to some degree. You know, one of my big concerns in recent years, one of my big interests has been the, the power of a few internet platforms over the public sphere. I'm interested, and this is a little bit tangential to our discussion today, but I'm interested in, in how that plays out. I mean, you see, you see, we were all concerned about Facebook being, being a monopoly three to five years ago. Now you see TikTok ascendant and Facebook on the wane a little bit. Does the market, you know, correct it's correct those those monopolies over on its own, or do we need more guardrails with antitrust uh, to keep a few companies from dominating the public sphere? That's something I'm really interested in. But I, you know, I, I think I, I think there there could be, as I said, I think there could be some dramatic consequences in the short term. In the long term, I think uh, you know the the, the internet will uh, the internet will survive. Job security for your beat. Jamil, I'll come to you. Are you similarly, uh, I don't know if that was note of optimism from Will, but it sort of sounded like one. Um, I definitely agree that it's unpredictable. And I also agree that, you know, the the internet is resilient in, in the ways that that Will described. I, I do worry about the margins that, that, like, there is this kind of culture war battle in between largely fought by people who have not actually thought very much about the internet or platforms or free speech. And they're just sort of kind of waving flags, like Section 230 is a kind of flag. And uh, it may be that the internet looks, you know, pretty much like the internet looks today, three years from now. But at the margins, you know, if the platforms suddenly think that we're now liable for terrorist speech, or we're, you know, we we can be uh, held liable for recommendations in certain contexts, then um, I feel pretty confident that the speech they're going to take down is going to be the speech of minority groups, you know, and uh, I mean, we've seen that already with, you know, the fight over terrorist speech and the implications for pro-Palestinian speech. Like that, that's just the way that, you know, these the rules get implemented is that um, the platforms get worried about anything, not, not just anything that it falls within the scope of the new liability, but anything that somebody else might suggest might fall within the scope of the new liability. And so there's this kind of zone beyond the new liability that uh, in which uh, controversial speech, you know, gets taken down. And, you know, the result will be that 
the speech that is really most valuable in a democracy, which is the, the speech at the margins, uh, you know, legitimate political speech that is very controversial. It's that speech uh, that will get take down, taken down, whether it's Black Lives Matter speech or it's pro-Palestinian speech or, you know, wh- whatever, and, um, you know, trans right speech, you know, it's that kind of stuff, or even conservative speech that is, you know, legitimate political discourse, but extremely controversial. That's the stuff that will, will, will come down. And I think that you know, some people will celebrate that. I see that as a, you know, as a loss for um, for our society. But it is very unpredictable, and the unpredictability is both a threat and an opportunity. You know, it is a kind of you know moment where, for better and worse, we are going back to first principles. And we're trying to figure out like what is it that the framework for public discourse, the legal framework uh, for public discourse, should look like. And uh, everything is up for grabs. And that is both really scary and maybe also uh, exciting. Randy, a last word to you. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of really interesting issues here. And I think that we need to also give a shout out to the Federal Trade Commission. I feel like they're doing a lot of work that's actually helping to move the needle in the right direction. As we think about platforms and the harms that they cause, I Unfortunately, not to be a pessimist, but I do feel like we're trying to move toward this ideal utopia that can't exist online. But at the same time, I think by pushing toward that vision of utopia, we can have these incremental wins that can improve the Internet for all. My biggest concern is that we need to make sure that we don't put in place legislation or regulation that inadvertently backfires and undermines platforms own ability to give a good faith effort of mitigating harmful content. And in that process, I'm going to bring it back to transparency. We really need more transparency because these platforms, oftentimes they are a monopoly in that certain area of social media. There is a lack of visibility on what's actually happening on the platform. So I think because of their position in the market, they may be compelled or should be compelled to be more transparent through transparency reports or opening up data to researchers and journalists. Well, uh, certainly, I suppose for all four of us, um, the opportunity to uh, talk about these issues, I'm I'm sure will come again and again and again over the next few months. um, And I hope it will happen in this context again. So I thank the three of you for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. Great to see you all. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my guests. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.